Well, take your copy of God's Word and open it with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. We'll begin in a moment in verse 13 and read through the end of the chapter. John 2, 13 through 25. When I was in high school, I went one year with my youth group to see The Great Passion Play, one of the largest passion play productions in the world in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. They literally built the set into the side of this great big mountain, took my family back there a couple of years ago, and it is still fantastic. But I'll always remember my first time there watching the passion play, and I remember when it came to that scene when Jesus arrived in the temple and saw what was going on, when he saw the money changers, and when he saw all of the merchants, and filled with a holy anger, he got a whip and began to swing it and drive them out and began to knock over their tables. I remember sitting there watching this, and there was a young lady seated right next to me who could not believe what she was seeing. And she was so shocked by this image that she said out loud where everyone around her could hear, she said, what? Jesus would never do that. Obviously, she had never read her Bible. Because that is what Jesus did, and that is what we're going to see in our scripture this morning. In the first part of John chapter 2, which we studied last Sunday, we see conversion, where Jesus converted the water into wine. This week, in the second part of John 2, we see a work of cleansing. Jesus cleansed the temple. And by the way, I want you to notice that God always does it in this order. First comes the conversion, and then comes the cleansing. You don't have to clean up your life in order to come to God to be saved. No, first God saves you, and then he cleans you up. Well, I believe John takes these two stories and he places them together side by side to show us these two sides of Jesus. There are a lot of people in the world today who have what I call a one-dimensional view of Jesus. A one-dimensional view of Jesus. In other words, the only Jesus they ever think about is meek and mild all the time. They want the Jesus of verses 1 through 12, but they're not interested in the Jesus of verses 13 through 25. They want the Jesus we see at the wedding, but not the Jesus we see in the temple. They want the wine, but not the whip. I'm here today to tell you that these two go together. You don't get one without the other because it is the same Jesus. The same Jesus 
who forgave sin. He confronted sinners. We saw back in John chapter 1, he said that Jesus was full of grace and truth. In the first half of John 1, we see the grace part. In the second half of John 2, we see the truth part. And both are parts of who Jesus is and how we know him. Yes, he wants to save you. Yes, he wants to fill your life with peace and joy. And he also wants to cleanse you and make you holy and remove those things in your life and my life that are contrary to God's character and God's word. And so this morning, as we read the other half of this chapter. There are three things we're going to see in this story that we need to understand if we're going to see this other side of Jesus. First of all, we see the root of his anger. I want you to notice the root of his anger. Look with me in verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. The Bible says that the Passover was near. For one month before Passover, they would prepare the city and fix all of the bridges and all of the roads and clean everything. There was a a spirit of anticipation and excitement that filled the air. All Jews who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem were required to come in person, but every Jew close and far, they all had at least the dream in their heart of one day being able to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, in the temple, at least one time in their lives. Well, Jesus came to Jerusalem. He made his way to the temple. And what did he see? He saw animals. He saw people buying and selling and arguing over prices. He saw the money being exchanged. This wasn't anything Jesus had not seen before. He had been to the temple before at Passover. But on this day, he arrived at the temple. And what Jesus saw happening was so offensive to God, he was filled with this white hot anger. And I want to point something out to you. When Jesus got angry, notice he didn't get angry at Rome. He didn't get angry at Caesar or at Pilate. He didn't get angry at the government because he never uh, believed that the government was going to act like or conduct themselves like the people of God. No, when Jesus got angry, his angry was not directed at what was happening outside the temple, but inside the temple amongst God's people. Now, how angry was Jesus when he saw this? Look at verse 15. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. I love the fact that it says, 
when he had made a whip of cords. Not when he found a whip of cords. When he made a whip of cords. He didn't see a whip lying around somewhere, pick it up, grab it, and start to use it. Oh, no, this was premeditated. Jesus didn't lose his cool. He wasn't out of control. No, this was Jesus in control every single moment. And when I read this, I can't help but wonder if his disciples saw what he was doing as he took those cords and began to intertwine them and tie them and make them into a whip. I wonder if his disciples saw him doing that and said, Jesus, what are you doing? And he says, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm making a whip. Jesus, why are you making a whip? Because when I'm finished, I'm going to use it on those crooks who are desecrating the house of God. You know, I read a lot of different commentators when I'm preparing to preach, and I did this week. I remember reading one commentator, normally someone I like, someone I trust, but I actually read, I actually read where someone said, well, of course, the whip that Jesus would have made and the way he swung it, it wouldn't have actually hurt. Well, I look closely. There's a work in the Greek that describes that. It is baloney. You don't drive evildoers from the temple by swinging a feather or a pillow. You use a whip. Did it hurt? You better believe it hurt. A lot of people went home that day nursing their wounds. Now, please understand, this is not a call to violence. As the Son of God, Jesus was uniquely qualified to do this so please if you don't like my sermon today don't come back next Sunday with a whip and start swinging it around Jesus could do this okay he had the right but when we read this we we have to ask ourselves a question what did Jesus see going on in the temple that led him to respond this way what was going on that he saw that caused him to have so much anger I want to mention four things that we see here in the text that explain why Jesus was angry. One of the things he saw was irreverence. He saw a complete irreverence among the people, including the religious leaders. Instead of worshipers, they had just become consumers. Notice in verse 16, Jesus called it, my father's house. He is speaking as the Son of God, and he said that this house, this house where the people come to worship God is to be different than any other house. Hear me carefully. The temple is not the market. The house of worship must never become a house of commerce. I already know what some people are going to say. There will be some who point out that in the New Testament, yes, we, the redeemed, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And yet I can't help but read this and think 
that those who gather together to worship God wherever we gather, whether it is a church building, whether it is a park, whether it's an open air, whether it is in someone's home, whenever and wherever we gather to worship God, that place should be treated differently. There should be a spirit of reverence. Irreverence angers God because our worship is supposed to reflect the greatness of the God we serve. Jesus saw the irreverence in the temple and he was angry, but he also was angry when he saw greed. He saw greed. Notice that it says Jesus poured out the money of the money changers and he overturned their tables. Understand that many of these worshipers in the temple that day had traveled a long distance. They had come from other countries and therefore they brought with them foreign currency. Now when they came, there was a temple tax that the scripture said that they were to pay. It was a half shekel. But when they got there, only Jewish currency was accepted. Now that we can understand. Uh, Normally, if you travel to another country, you exchange your money. Tomorrow, I'm going to get on a plane, go to Cuba. First thing I will do is exchange my money into Cuban pesos because my American dollars will not help me there. We can understand the exchanging of money, but these guys took it to an extreme. They were charging the equivalent of a denarius, an entire day's salary, just to convert two shekels. That would be like having to pay $200 in fees alone before the tax, before you purchased your sacrifice. They were fleecing the people, and the people who were being fleeced, most of them were poor, and they were just there to worship God. But these folks, all they cared about was money. Now, I'm willing to talk about money because the Bible talks about money. I'm willing to say I believe the Bible teaches that believers should tithe and that we should give a tenth and that we should give offerings above the tithe. Uh, I believe that. The Bible teaches that. And yet I also know and you know that there are churches where money is the only thing they talk about because that is the only thing they care about. You know what? That makes Jesus angry. And it ought to make us angry as well. Jesus saw their irreverence. He saw their greed. Something else he saw, he saw corruption. He saw corruption. You know how when you go to a movie theater or when you go to an amusement park or you go to a sporting event and they don't let you bring your own food? You have to buy the food that they sell you after you get in. You know how that works? And then when you get there, the food that they sell you is way, way, way overpriced. That's what was happening here. The people came to sacrifice, but their sacrifice had to be approved by the official temple inspectors. And guess what? 
they were not likely to approve of the sacrifice you brought if you did not buy it from them. And, of course, the sacrifices that they were going to sell you that you could offer were way overpriced. For example, something as simple as a single dove. It cost almost 20 times more inside the temple than it would have cost you to buy it outside of the temple. Can you imagine how that must have felt? Like, how would you feel if you went to some store and you had to pay $200 in fees so that you'd have the privilege of paying $100 for a $20 toaster? How would you feel? Well, I think that's what Jesus felt. He saw that. He saw that corruption in the house of God, and it made him angry. But there's something else Jesus saw in the temple that made him angry that I have to mention. Not just what they were doing, but something they were not doing. He saw their prayerlessness. He saw their prayerlessness. We know from Mark's gospel that that place in the temple where all of this was happening was in the Gentiles' court. That was the part of the temple that had been set aside and reserved so that the Gentiles could come and pray and worship God. That's why in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels, when Jesus cleansed the temple, now I believe that was a separate event, a separate cleansing uh, that happened at the end of his earthly ministry, but when Jesus cleansed the temple on that occasion, he said, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. Now, just try to imagine that you were a Gentile in those days, that you had traveled a long way from another country so that you could worship God in the temple at Passover. You could not be more excited every step of the way. You can't wait to get there and be able to worship God. And then finally, when you arrive the one and only place that is set aside for you to pray and praise God is filled with animals. Animals and people who were acting like animals. This is it? There's nowhere else for me to pray? Someone says, sorry, come back next year. When Jesus saw all of this that was happening... He was angry. He was so angry that when his disciples saw this, they remembered a verse of Scripture, Psalm 69, 9. John quotes it in verse 17. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. That word, to eat up, means to consume like fire consumed wood. Jesus had a consuming fire that was burning from within. Now, to everybody else who saw what was happening, they were used to it. To them, it was normal. They accepted it. Jesus did not accept it. 
You know, sometimes in our lives, there are certain things that maybe we allow. We just get used to it. We learn to accept it. But that doesn't mean God accepts it. Sometimes God will see that and burn with a holy anger. And, and by the way, there are times in our lives where we should be angry. Paul told the Ephesians, be angry and sin not. There are actually times in our lives where it would be a sin for us not to be angry over certain things, over these things. But let me just ask you this question before I move on. If Jesus was this angry over the irreverence, greed, corruption, and prayerlessness in the temple, do you actually think he would be any less angry about irreverence, greed, corruption, or prayerlessness in his church? Do we really think that God is any less angry when his church is full of consumers instead of worshipers? Absolutely not. And so we read this, and we have to ask ourselves some really hard questions. Is there irreverence among us? How are we approaching God? What does our worship reflect about the God we serve? Have we been guilty of loving money more than God or loving money in place of God? Have we taken advantage of our neighbors? Have we been guilty of prayerlessness because we can expect that God would respond the same way with us that he did with them. We see in this the root of Jesus's anger. Now something else we see in this story, we also see the sign of his authority. The sign of his authority. Look at verse 18. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things. Well, needless to say, the people in charge, they saw this. They were quite upset. They wanted to know, what authority do you have? But notice the way they worded the question. What sign do you show us since you do these things? In other words, what can you do to prove that you have the authority to go into the temple, the house of God, and just take over. Now, you know what? That was an excellent question. That was the right question. They should have been asking that question. Now, Jesus could have answered them. You know what he could have said? He could have said, oh, you want a sign? How about the fact that I'm the only person around here who cares about the dignity of the house of God? He could have said that, but that's not what he said. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Jesus said this 
knowing that his disciples were not going to get it immediately. He said this knowing that it would take them about three years to really understand what he had just said. And sometimes that's how God works in our lives. He speaks to us in his word. He reveals something to us, but maybe we don't get it right away. Maybe it takes some time until finally we're able to look back and really understand what God was saying to us. But Jesus speaks of this temple that he's going to destroy and raise again in three days. Now, you may remember that the physical temple there in Jerusalem, it was first built by Solomon. Then the Babylonians came and destroyed it in 586 B.C. Seventy years later, they rebuilt it, but it wasn't what it used to be. So then fast forward a few more centuries, here comes Herod, and Herod began this project really Uh, uh, renovating and expanding the temple to bring it back to its original design, its original glory. And apparently he was doing a pretty good job because they had a saying back in those days, the people would say, if you haven't seen Herod's temple, you haven't seen the temple. That's what they would say. And so you can imagine their surprise. They've been working on this thing now for 46 years. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they thought, seriously? Is this some, is this some kind of joke? We've been at this for 46 years now, and you, by yourself, you're going to do in three days what all of us have not been able to do in almost half a century. You realize that they would use these words against Jesus? When Jesus was put on trial, they brought up this statement. You realize that when Jesus hung upon the cross, the people who were mocking him, they brought up this statement. Hey, you there, you who said you could destroy the temple and build it back up in three days. How about getting yourself off of that cross? But the funny thing about all this is if Jesus would have literally rebuilt the actual temple in three days, do you realize that actually would have been a smaller miracle than the miracle Jesus was offering them? The text doesn't explicitly say this, but maybe Jesus pointed to himself and said, destroy this temple And in three days, I will raise it up again. In this case, we know that the temple that Jesus was referring to, the temple that he would raise up, was the temple of his body when he rose again on the third day from the dead. And by the way, a little something I want to just point out here, kind of a parenthesis. In John 2, Jesus says that he will raise himself from the dead. And then in Romans 6, we're told God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. In Romans 1 and Romans 8, we're told that God the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working together to raise him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus was the work of the triune God. But this was actually the bigger miracle. This was the bigger miracle. I mean, it would be a miracle, yes, to build a building in three days, especially in Miami-Dade County. I mean, that would be a miracle, right? It's one thing to build a building in three days. It's another thing to raise someone from the dead. 
Understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying, okay, you want a sign? I will give you a sign. My resurrection from the dead. That's the sign. That's where my authority comes from. In other words, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, that means not according to Howard Harden. That means according to Jesus. He has no authority. If he died and did not rise again, he did not have the authority to cleanse the temple. He has no authority over us. If Jesus died and he did not rise from the dead, that means we should not hear him, much less worship him. But the flip side of that is also true. Because he did rise from the dead, he had authority over the temple. He has authority over his church. He has authority over our lives. He has authority over all of creation because he lives, because he rose from the dead. He could say before the Great Commission in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The resurrection is the proof that he has that authority. And so we see the root of his anger, these things that angered Jesus in the temple. We see the sign of his authority, how it is he had the authority to do something about it. But then one more thing I want you to see, and that is his knowledge of our condition. His knowledge of our condition. Look at verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. We're not told the details, but according to John, there were other miracles that Jesus performed that week. There were other signs. And when people saw those signs, verse 23 says that many believed in his name. Now, if we didn't read the rest of the chapter, if we just stopped right there after verse 23, uh, we would totally misunderstand the passage. We might stop right there and think, man, that is fantastic. That's wonderful. Many believed in his name. Keep reading. Verse 24, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. What an amazing statement. Notice it says Jesus did not commit himself to them. That Greek word is actually the word believe, the same word we saw in the verse before. Verse 23 says many believed in him. Verse 24 then says Jesus did not believe in them. What does he mean? Why not? He tells us because he knew them. He knew that they believed in the miracle worker. They believed in the magician. They believed in the circus. They did not believe in him for all that he truly is. And that's why John said he didn't need the testimony of man. You know, there's an election on Tuesday. Most of you know that. Vote if you haven't done so. But, you know, if you're, if you're running for some public office, there are all sorts of endorsements. Every time I turn on the news, so-and-so has endorsed so-and-so for this office or that office. If you are running for some public office, you do not want and you do not need the endorsement of a notorious serial killer on death row. 
That's not going to help you win an election. Likewise, Jesus doesn't need our endorsement. That's what John is saying. He doesn't need our endorsement because he is Lord whether we believe in him or not. He's Lord whether we worship him or not. He didn't need the testimony of man. Why? Because he knew all men. Because, John said, he knows what is in man. Jesus didn't need anybody to explain human nature to him. He knew then, he knows now, that apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. We are slaves to sin We are in rebellion against God. We are blind. We are helpless. We are hopeless. John tells us this at the end of the chapter because I I think he wants us to understand it's not just those people in the temple whose hearts were full of irreverence, greed, corruption, and prayerlessness. It's our hearts as well. And if Jesus knows what is in all men, guess what? That means he knows what is in you. And he knows what is in me. And that means he knows all my thoughts. He knows all of my secrets. Maybe you read this at the end of verse 25, and maybe you're tempted to think, oh, pastor, If this is true, I'm in trouble. Because if Jesus really knew me, how could he love me? And yet, the wonder of it all is that he does. The one who knows us the best is the one who loves us the most. He knew us, and yet he was willing to come from heaven to earth and live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we should have died. He went to the cross And he allowed the wrath of his father, that same anger that we see in God the Son, in John chapter 2, he allowed that wrath to be poured out on himself when he died on the cross for your sins and for mine. And he took our place and he rose again so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Let me remind you before I pray what I said at the very beginning of this message. Conversion before cleansing. Conversion before cleansing. The same Jesus who turned water into wine is the Jesus who will turn you into a new creation. And the same Jesus who cleansed the temple is the Jesus who will cleanse you of sin if you will believe in him and call on his name. Will you join me as we pray? Our God, we thank you for this glimpse that we have received in your word today of this other side of Jesus We know that the world around us only wants to think about or talk about Jesus' love, which is wonderful. And we thank you and we praise you for it. But we also see his holiness. 
we see that you are a God of justice, and therefore you must judge sin. And we thank you, God, that you sent Jesus from heaven to earth to make a way where love and holiness could meet, where justice and mercy could meet. And because Jesus died for us and rose again, because he received upon himself the whip of divine judgment, therefore we can be saved. God, I pray if there are any here today who have never come to that point in their lives of truly believing upon him for who he is as Savior and Lord, the one who died and rose again, God, I pray that this would be their day of salvation. This would be that moment that they would acknowledge their sin and their guilt and call upon Jesus to be Savior and Lord of all. Father, have your way. Help all of us here today to be able to take what we've seen in this passage and apply it to our lives. Help us to be on guard for any trace of these things in our church that Jesus saw in the temple. God, we want to be a holy people. We see how Jesus responded when he arrived in Jerusalem, when he arrived at the temple, and we think about how we would have Jesus respond if he literally, physically came to First Baptist Church of Homestead. God, how we want you to be pleased. And so help us, God, to see and recognize that unconfessed sin in our lives that we need to confess before you today so that we would be cleansed, that we would be a holy people in your sight. And God, we thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.